territory completely undisturbed since the looting. That meant our first clean crime scene and the possibility of a significant investigative breakthrough. We might even get something we had seen very little of so far, hard evidence. We also had a BBC film crew tagging along. They wanted the story, and I wanted to be able to use their footage to document our findings. Like everything else in a war zone, their presence was a quid pro quo, a horse trade. The list of missing objects already read like a compilation of Mesopotamia's greatest hits. There was the sacred vase of Warka, the world's oldest carved stone ritual vessel. There was the mask of Warka, the first naturalistic depiction of the human face. There was the gold bull's head that had adorned Queen Shubad's golden harp of Ur, discovered in 1929 by a team that included Sir Leonard Woolley, Sir Max Malawan, and Malawan's future wife, Agatha Christie. There was the Bezetki statue, one of the earliest known examples of the lost wax technique of casting copper, as well as the lioness attacking a Nubian and the twin copper Ninhursag bulls. These pieces alone were a year's course in art history. They were all in one museum, and they were all gone. We had tried repeatedly to open the heavy steel doors that would lead us down into the basement. So had the looters. Some of these bore sledgehammer marks. Others were covered over by heavy grates wrapped with the kind of cable locks we use in Manhattan to keep motorcycles in place. Much later, watching the BBC footage over and over again while back home, I noted how one of Nuala's AK-47 toting assistants showed up behind me with a set of keys. The museum had this curious arrangement of overlapping circles of security born out of their even more curious system of centralized authority and interdepartmental animosities. Not only did staff from one department have no idea about the inventories or practices of other departments, no one had the keys to every sector. None of the keys was ever marked, and these were no exception. Nuala had to try every single one, and even then she could not find the key that would get us into the sanctum sanctorum of the underground storage room. We took the difficulty as cause for optimism. Actually, given that this area held some of the museum's most highly valuable and most easily transportable objects, it was closer to elation. If we couldn't get in, chances are the bad guys hadn't either. As we would later determine... There were four underground rooms in an L-shaped configuration, plus a fifth that had to be accessed through a different route. In the deepest, darkest corner of one of those rooms was a row of ordinary unmarked lockers that would have fit right in at the gym where I learned to box. Only instead of sweaty workout clothes, these held the world's greatest collection of ancient gold and silver coins. In these same brown and beat-up lockers, in the same dark corner, was also the world's greatest collection of ancient cylinder seals, highly prized by collectors and, accordingly, highly prized by thieves. About the size of a piece of chalk, these intricately carved pieces of lapis lazuli, carnelian, or other stone had once been worn on a string around the neck by upscale citizens of ancient Mesopotamia. These were the people who invented writing, scratching wedge-shaped, Cuneus forma in Latin, hence cuneiform, symbols into soft clay with a stylus beginning 5,500 years ago. As the final touch to any correspondence, they would use the seal the way my grandmother used a rolling pin to smooth out philodol. 
The impression left in the soft clay by the inscribed seal was the distinctive signature of that individual. Nuala, a descendant of these ancient and inventive people, was one tough lady. I had watched her break her toe just a few days earlier and not utter a sound. On that day, we had also been trying to open a locked door, one that was ten inches thick. When it finally gave, she could have jumped back out of the way, but in doing that she would have touched me, a violation of Sharia, the religious law. So she stayed put, the heavy steel door raked across her toe, and she silently crumbled into herself, biting one of her thumbs. In the hot glare of the BBC's cameras, and frustrated with the endless number of unmarked keys, Nuala muttered to herself, but for my benefit said, there is the other way. I glanced at my guys from ICE, the Bureau of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. It has been sealed off with bricks, she said, so there is no way anyone could enter. I didn't know if it was the custom in Iraq, but my thought was, knock on wood when you say that. This back door Nuala told us about was at the bottom of a narrow stairwell, accessed from a landing just off of a room displaying Roman antiquities from Hatra. Those are the ruins of an ancient commercial crossroads that you see in the opening scene from The Exorcist when a Mesopotamian demon escapes from an archaeological dig. We went through the Assyrian and Babylonian collections and entered the Hatran Gallery. All we noticed at first were some three-foot-high movable partitions in front of a small doorway in the corner. But moving closer, we saw why the partitions were in place. The lower portion of the locked glass door was smashed, and behind that, down about knee level, a steel grate across the door had been bent with a crowbar. Nuala threw up her hands, gasping out the Arabic equivalent of, Oh, my God. The small area beyond the glass door was like a broom closet beneath a stairway. In fact, to the rear of this tiny alcove, the underside of the museum's main stairs passed overhead, ascending from right to left. But inside the small alcove, and immediately to the right, was another extremely narrow stairway going down to the basement. At the bottom of this narrow stairs, the metal door was wide open. But, as we had come to expect by now, there were no signs that it had been forced open. We could see the cinder blocks that had been mortared into place behind this door to seal the actual opening. We could also see that two cinder blocks from the top row and two from the second row had been pried loose and removed. It was at this point that we asked the BBC crew to stay behind and politely appropriated their equipment. Steve Maksari, the senior ICE agent on my team in Baghdad, picked up the big Ampex camera and started filming. His most immediate cinematic purpose, though, was to direct the TV lights into the cavernous area beyond the doorway as Bud Rogers and I prepared to go over the wall. Bud was also ICE, as well as former Army Special Forces. He had been on a classified operation in Romania when we first entered Iraq. But as soon as we decided to undertake the museum investigation, Steve told me that Bud was the best in the business and requested permission to bring him in country. One phone call later, Bud was getting off a Blackhawk, and I learned very quickly that Steve had not been exaggerating. For his own part, although Steve may have been a bit long in the tooth, this was certainly his last shot in the field before a desk job and then retirement, he was no slouch. A veteran of UDT, the Navy's elite underwater demolitions team, he was tough and seasoned, utterly unflappable, and he knew explosives. The hole in the cinder blocks was big enough for only one of us to go through at a time. On the other side of the wall, the stairway continued on down. I went first, like a diver, head foremost, arms extended. 
I'd like to say that I landed in a perfect combat role with cat-like reflexes peering into the unknown darkness, my 9mm poised and ready to fell any evildoer with a double tap to center mass. In fact, I landed in a clump and scratched both elbows, but at least my pistol was ready. Then Bud Rogers dropped down beside me. In Iraq, every place at every moment is hotter than hell, but underground it was hotter than the hinges of hell. Specifically, the hinges of Dante's eighth circle, the one he reserved for thieves and hypocrites to suffer together for eternity. The room was airless, and aside from the BBC camera's light shining over my head, pitch dark. Steve maneuvered the beam so we could assess the situation before we moved. We could not be 100% certain that we were alone down here, and holding a flashlight in front of your body is like wearing a nice big target pinned to your chest. I looked ahead and tried not to blink as the salty sweat trickled down, burning my eyes. Then I saw footprints in the dust making a beeline across the floor. These thieves had a very clear idea of where they were going and, presumably, what they were after. The coins and the cylinder seals, some of which were worth $250,000 a pop. Anyone could carry off a million dollars worth in a single fanny pack. What I didn't know was whether they had reached their objective. But of more immediate concern, had they left any surprises for us? We had found rocket-propelled grenades, hand grenades, Iraqi uniforms, and assorted small arms scattered throughout the museum. This last corner of the basement would have been an excellent place to leave a parting gift wired with explosives. As an investigator, I was thinking about the straight line in the dust. As a Marine, I was thinking about rods, cones, and night vision. In the dark, you're supposed to look slightly off-center and trigger pull. As a classical history buff, I was thinking, wow, this is like the catacombs. Slowly and with great care, we crept down the few remaining steps and followed the path of the foot.